Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 172nd episode of the Truth Island podcast. The link between fear and evil is an extremely strong bond, which runs deep in everything from our ancient mythology all the way into our popular culture through movies such as Star Wars. However, something that is less talked about is what exactly are the reasons as to why some people are more fearful than others? Most psychologists would be the first to point out that most of the things that have traumatized us in life most likely happened to us in childhood, as childhood is often the time when we are most vulnerable. For instance, a child that was abused by his parents or bullies at school would most likely grow up to be a fearful adult, as they may fear being placed in the same vulnerable position as when they were younger. As adults, some of us have also incurred a number of traumatic incidents ranging from car accidents, violence, murder, and wartime atrocities. Yet despite how many or when these traumatic experiences occurred, it remains interesting how some people catalog these past events into their eternal memory, while others are more easily able to shake off some of the more darker episodes in their life. Fear, unlike most feelings, is not something that most people can easily repress as one might be able to tone down their anger at someone they dislike, but it is often very difficult for that same person to remain calm if they woke up the next morning with a giant rat in their bed. In fact, fear is perhaps the one emotion that we can do very little to control, but must exert much energy in overcoming. Helping me to understand why I get scared from time to time, I am once again joined by Kenny. Kenny, do you agree with the famous quote by Franklin Roosevelt, we have nothing to fear except fear itself. The quote makes a good amount of sense, though, because at the end of the day, fear is the great destroyer. It messes you up, man, in so many ways. You know, hear the thing, the whole you know, the old saying that, you know, when you fear something, usually you kind of uh, behave in a manner because of the fear that brings about that which you fear the most. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's, I do agree. I think it's a very, it's a very dangerous thing. It's a very unhelpful thing. Yeah, uh, I actually want to like unpack that quote a little bit more um, because I think the fear that FDR is referring to is probably what we would call anxiety today, mostly. Because, um, hey, if you if you knew that in a year's time you were going to be sent overseas and fighting in Europe or something like that, I'm sure many of us would have a lot of anxiety, aka fear. And I think that if we actually look at the things that we have anxiety about, the things that we fear the most, they never actually end up happening. Or if they do end up happening, they're never in the way that we thought they would. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, like I'm sure there's a million, like, did I do this? Did I lock the door? <laughs> did, I, did, I, did I say the wrong thing to my boss? And then you come in the next day to work and you realize, oh, my boss doesn't even remember what it is that I said yesterday. So yeah. I think we spend an enormous amount of our lives worrying about things that just never end up pan happening. And the things that do bite us in the behind are things that we probably never even thought about. Yeah. Here's, here's the thing is that I, I, I can understand why people are fearful. I mean, if, for example, even when you think about, you know, did I offend my boss or my coworker or whatever it is, I get it. I get it. It's, you know, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to have done something wrong, socially unacceptable. You don't want to become a pariah or a, that disrespectful guy or whatever. So it's understandable because we're social creatures. We're living in a very, you know, social world. And so our behaviors, our thing, the things we say and so forth do impact not only ourselves, but others and how we're perceived by others and so forth. But the problem is not that we, that fear arises. Fear arises because we're rational beings. Fear arises because we are, um, um, well, in many ways, selfish beings. <laughs> we want to protect ourselves. We want to be fine. But the problem is not that fear arises. The problem is that we give into it so quickly. So quickly. In fact, in our world today, fear is actually a good thing. In a, in a way that it's almost like a badge of honor to have anxiety. You have anxiety, you don't say. Now we get to cuddle you and treat you differently. And we get to say, oh, isn't that, isn't that hard that you're anxious? Yeah, it is. But you ought to be ashamed of yourself for being anxious for so long. You're breathing 
living being you're an, you're an adult you're a, you're a human being you know if there is only emotion or sensation that you should not be living by it's fear and your anxious and your anxieties so i can understand that i can understand it makes sense anxieties arise fears arise but hot dog why live in them why choose to be there for more i would say for more than a day some people should not even be there for have have the capacity to stand you know to stand against it within the hour i can understand it but i certainly don't in any way um believe it should be condoned individually of course okay um yeah no i love what you're saying here so the fear does have a uh, a certain utility to it you know for example let let's just say that you're a general and you're planning an attack or something maybe it's good that you have some anxiety because then you're going to take better preparation because if you're a general and you're saying well what if the enemy has this what if the enemy is waiting for us on this beach or so forth you're going to take more preparation and you're going to you know plan a lot better so some anxiety is very useful in the sense that it allows us to be better planners it allows us to forecast for the future and have various emergency plans and contingencies in case things go wrong whereas someone who is less anxiety prone or less fearful they're like whatever happens happens you know you know i think of the guy who goes on a camping trip and he's like yeah i bought an undershirt and i, I brought a granola bar it's going to be fine uh, i'll be totally cool you know and it's like uh dude you're going on a you know a week long camping trip i think you better plan better and pack a few more things in order to to get through the week so there is there is that argument that the anxiety um is maybe a sign of intelligence or it's a sign of better preparation and i think for that like people who come to life with a game plan we we tend to applaud that what do you do you think that's nonsense or do you think there's some truth in that no i think it's a bit of both yeah i so yeah it's true that people who are anxious and fearful you know i mean when they see the danger coming they run away you know they run because they're scared the lion is chasing so you run yeah fear ooh. but i think it's bollocks in the sense that you don't have to be afraid to run you just run because you don't want to die you know what it can do to you you know you know what it can do to you in fact i would say that the person who is not afraid and runs can actually how do you say um because they're still still there still rational can think of a way can you know um actually think better and clearer than a person who is just running out to skelter left to right and just trying to survive for their life my point is that there is nothing fear prepares you for or fear allows you to do for survival then read that reason doesn't the general who plans out of fear sure let's just say everything works out fine he could have easily done that because he's a reasonable man he understands human nature he understands the nature of war he understands how to be prepared he loves his he loves his troops and his country and so forth and he wants to make sure that he does the best that he can he doesn't have to be afraid in order to do that he just has to be a brilliant man So I think I don't know that that fear is important. I've never seen a place where I see that fear is fear is in any way important or useful. But I do I see that there are other things that can easily take its place and do far better than fear would have you know would have done on its own. I actually love No, you made a really uh good distinction there. So let's say we have two generals, the fearful general and the rational general. The fearful general is like one of his subordinates comes up to this general and says, "Hey, sir, you know, the enemy might attack from here." And he's panicking. He's like, "Oh my goodness, we got to do something about it." But he's the way he's making these contingency plan is on a fear-based emotion. Whereas the other general, a subordinate says, "Hey, you know, the enemy might attack this way." And he understands the danger of it. He recognizes that there's a legitimate danger. but the decisions he's making are not governed on the emotion of fear they're just based on the on the uh the on rationality as opposed to like fear based planning yeah no i uh, that's a, that's that, that's a really good distinction okay why now this is something that i kind of want to get to the crux of with this conversation why do you think some people when they're informed that something unpleasant is coming their way why do some people have the ability to immediately turn on their rational mind and why do other people kind of relapse into this 
um, sort of emotional fear-based thinking? Do you think it's something in their DNA? Is it something in their childhood? What, what's causing one person to deal with something very unpleasant and be totally rational and someone else to kind of start panicking? Well, I think this, you know, this is barely, oh, you know, blankets. You can't, I don't, I don't know that it's easy to blanket this up. But the best that I can see is that some people have trained their minds to be this way ever since they were children, either because they had parents who forced them to think and forced them not to be, you know, to train your minds not to react immediately to fear, but to suppress it and use something else. Uh, it could be just natural disposition. There are people who just can't, they can't fear. It's very hard for them to be afraid of anything. I actually, this is some sort of a condition um, but there are, there are people like that. It's hard for them. They don't understand fear, why they should be afraid of anything. But there are, then there's others who, because it depends on the way they view the world. Others simply do not, are not afraid because of their worldview, their philosophy, and so forth. Though the person who says, well, if I fear, if I'm afraid, I suffer twice. Mm. Or the person who says, you know, there is a God and he is for me, therefore, why should I be afraid? Or the person who says, well, everything is futility. I might as well just get with the program. So there, there are different, I would say there are different reasons why people respond differently. But often I found that fear, people who, you know, who are not, people who are, who are, not, who are not thoughtful, not in the sense of they don't have to be, you know, sitting down in a library somewhere with a pipe in their teeth <laughs> and reading, you know, a, a book twice as big as your heads but it's just that they don't they don't think they, they just you know they behave they, they 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 live by their sensations back and forth everything they feel is real and they really they, they, that's how they live that's how they've been brought up to live and that's how their disposition they have just naturally weak constitutions and so they live like that and then not upon that they have a worldview that is contrary like it's totally against them they haven't found a way in their world to make sense of you know, anything other than fear. It's like you you're, imagine a worldview where you, you, you have this natural disposition where you are just, your, your nerves are just rattled by the slightest thing, you're like a reed blown in the wind, you know? And then you, you, you believe that this world is as a vast vacuum of emptiness, that beyond space is nothing, you know? Like you're this, you're this cosmic accident, a blip, in, the, in, 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 in eternity, in time, time, you know, from beginning of time onto eight, when, it, when it's done, you're just, you're nothing. You're on your own. You're an animal on your own. And everything else is out to get, my goodness, that's like a, that's suicide just really waiting to happen. Can I play devil's advocate for one minute? I'm, I'm not saying that I personally believe this. What if you came across an atheist who had that uh, worldview that like, I'm just a little blip, I'm a little nothing, and they actually took solace in that and said, oh, it really doesn't matter if I mess up that presentation tomorrow. And, you know, in 100,000 years, no one's really going to care that I messed up this presentation. Do you think there's some people that could actually find comfort in the fact? Like I've heard astronomers say that when they look up into the stars, they realize how insignificant they are. I think like Carl Sagan may have said something like this. And he said, hey, um, I actually feel better about myself because when I look at all these stars and all these different galaxies, I realize, hey, I, I'm not all that important. And uh, I don't worry as much because it's not like it's not like the whole world is looking at me. So do you think that any people could actually find solace in their insignificance instead of uh, fear from it? Yeah, the, the, those people fall into the first category that I had mentioned earlier, the people who believe it's all futility and they're more than willing to deal with it. The problem is not you. It's not just the worldview. The problem is how you interact with the worldview, how you think about what you think. How, how what you think affects you. Some people in this, you know, so yeah, some people, the insignificance of their life is something they're more than willing to, you know, to reconcile and live accordingly. While others, it's still a terrifying situation. So it really does depend. It really does not, it's not simply the worldview, but how one interacts and how that worldview affects you. Um, so yeah, I can, I can definitely see a person who believes their insignificance. And through their insignificance, who through that belief of their insignificance, finds not comfort enough 
do not have to be afraid of anything. So that's interesting. So there could be the God-fearing person who believes, you know, that there is a God. And yeah, that, like the, yeah there's, there's and, a person who believes in a God and believes that the God is, you know, cosmically dark and unknowable and you just can't trust him. Right. You know or I mean? it's like it's, yeah. Or perhaps they're fearful that they've angered God in some way. So you could, Voila. yeah, so you could, you could be a person who's like, hey, God's on my side. And then you find magical strength and that allows you to overcome fear through that interpretation. You could also believe in God and believe that you've done something wrong and that he's angry at you. And that brings you fear and anxiety. And, and, yes. and then the same thing on the uh, atheist perspective, you could have like the Carl Sagan sort of like, yeah, I'm really insignificant, no pressure, I can do as I please. Or you could be an atheist and say, you know, oh, there's no point to this. There's no meaning behind it. I'm afraid of everything. I, I want to live right. as long as possible. And I want to, you know, ha- live in the nice bestest house that I can possibly get. So either, even, you know, even different worldviews, there's a good interpretation or a useful interpretation. And there's like a non-useful interpretation of those worldviews. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I do think, and I, you know, again, like I said, you know, I know you're not the biggest fan of our good friend, the psychologist, but <laughs> I, I do, I, I do, I do think that they bring up a point about early childhood traumas. And I, I do think that, you know, if I think about childhood, my own childhood, I think you'll never be as vulnerable in life for most people. Okay. Maybe something later on might happen in your life, but for the majority of us, we are the most vulnerable when we are children. We have limited, you know, first off, we're only like three feet tall. (laughs) Our parents take us everywhere that we will ever go. You know, they control our every movements, they control what we eat, what we do. And I do feel that there are some people who have some kind of experiences Mm. in childhood where they felt extremely helpless and extremely vulnerable. And when they Mm. become, when they turn 18, 19, 20, they wanna do everything in their power to make sure that that never happens again do you or do you put any weight into that at all no that yeah that makes sense i I can understand that yeah i believe that's the real thing And, and that's so that's kind of just the luck of the draw so if you were a child and you were in a very empowering situation you're going to be less fearful because you know in psychology we have you know, the thing called like the locus of control, is it external or is it internal? People who have an internal locus of control believe they are the ones that set their own destiny. If you have an external locus of control, it's other people, other events, other things that shape you. And I think childhood has a lot to do of whether you have that internal or external locus of control. I mean, what, what, what do we say to these people? Is, is there some way that we should be empowering children so they don't have these fearful things? And, you know, and again, I think of Star Wars, like Yoda looked at Anakin at age nine and said, buddy, you've got too much fear. I mean, are we really like, if you already have that much fear at nine years old, are you already done for, or is there, is there something that we could do to kind of change things around? No, I think there's absolutely things you can do to change things around. I mean, it all depends on, you know, the person and if they value the if they value um, that fearlessness if they value courage and so forth but I think anybody can change at any point sometimes it may be harder than it would have been you know at the age of 40 um, it may be harder to change at the age of 40 than it would have been when you were like you know you know 10 11 but it's um but I think change is change is not I don't think change is a available to only few i think it's available to everybody mm-hmm. um so yeah if a lot of this and i think you know fear and courage instilled in children have a lot it has a lot to do with your parents you know it has a lot to do with the heroes the kids you know have and so forth usually you know hopefully your parents are your heroes quote-unquote heroes i don't really no yeah but the point is that you look up to your parents hopefully for a great deal of your life if not all of your life um so parents usually have a way of mucking it up eventually um but the hope is that you you look up to your parents for a great deal of your life and your parents exhibit those characteristics of courage and wisdom strength and love and so forth enough unfortunately not everybody not everybody experiences this you know in their parents some parents are just cold and distance some are 
just too affectionate in their in their in their sentiments, you know, just too sentimental, and you end up um, because they think that's what love is, or they think that's what you know what it means to be parents. You know, and it just ends up exasperating the children. But but things change, so it doesn't really matter. I don't really think it matters very much what kind of parents you grew up with. I don't. I don't. And I think eventually every young man or woman becomes responsible for themselves at some point. I don't know when that age is in the United States legally, it's 18, but it could come much earlier morally. I like if a 16 year old makes a decision to do something bad, is it their parents' fault? You know what I mean? Like there's at, at some points, every human being develops an understanding of right and wrong, right? And it may, it may differ, um, from person to person and, you know, age to age. But at some point, you can't keep blaming your parents for everything. you got to take responsibility for who you've become. Yeah, we're not saying your parents didn't do jacks, you know, didn't mess you up in one way or the other. Yeah, whatever. Get over it. Get over it. Because you have a life to live. You have a life to live. You can't keep looking back and blaming people forever. That's just sad, and it's pathetic, and it's useless. Take responsibility, forgive your parents, and move on. Because if you don't, here's the thing, if you don't forgive your parents, you're going to turn out to be just like them. Because every time you sound like your father, every time you sound like your mother, you're going to hate yourself. When you hate yourself, you're going to hate the object that caused you to sound like that, your kids. Your kids forced you, quote unquote, forced you to sound like your mom. Now you hate yourself for sounding like her because you hate her. Now you hate your, your kids for making you, putting you in a position where you had to say the exact same thing she said once. You can't believe it. So anyway, that's just a little side note there. But no, I, I, I think, you know, it's possible for people to change, but we got to take responsibility and we have to know what we want to become. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I think um, continuously blaming people in the past is it's not a way forward, right? Like people, yeah. you know, people think if I mine the past long enough, eventually I'll find a path forward. And it's just not true. Like, you know, you can analyze your childhood. No. You can, you can analyze that day when your dad didn't buy you the ice cream cone again and again. And it's not, it, at some point, it just doesn't make a difference. Where I'm a little confused is, the treatment option. Okay. And, and here's, here's where I'm a little confused. Let's say you have a fear of spiders. Well, what's the easiest way to get over that fear of spiders? Probably, you know, have a spider on your arm, right? I, I knew a guy who uh, was afraid of elevators and what was the best way to handle that? Get into a freaking elevator, right? <laughs> like most fears just by doing the act, you know, public speaking, whatever it is, you simply engage in that activity and you do it enough times and you become desensitized to it. You're like, oh, this is nothing. And then the, the mental image that you had, like of this evil elevator over time begins to corrode because you, you go into an elevator enough times, whatever you thought an elevator was, you find out it's not that thing and it's not nearly as bad or whatever as, as you believe it to be. Unless someone yeah. you know, lets out a giant fart and it's really unpleasant to be in that elevator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, my question though, is that if you have a child that was, let's say abused or beaten, what exactly is the treatment option for overcoming that fear? Because it's a bit different than a spider, a spider, you're afraid of spiders. Great. Have a spider on your arm. But when you're, when you've been like, let's say subjected to some kind of violence or something like that, I don't know what exactly is the set of experiences that you would need to undergo to overcome that fear. That's where I'm like, I hear you, like blaming your parents for that forever and ever is not helpful. But what exactly does that, what is the set of experiences or things that that person must do in order to overcome that fear? That's the thing that, you know, I'm scratching my head about. Well, it depends, right? Because here's the hardest thing about things like this is, things sound bad, like when, when you, when you hear about how someone's abused by their father or their mother, physically like hit, hits and stuff like that, it's like, it sounds horrible. And it sounds like, no, you have every right never to get over that because it's horrible, right? 
It's like, oh my goodness. How do you get over something like that? Well, well, <laughs> people say usually isn't it's going and confronting your parents and it's like something like, you know, and telling them like, you know, hey, this is what you hurt me in this way. And, you know, it's like, okay, unless they've changed, you're just opening, you're just going back to a world of hurt. It's, it's sometimes even like, like they, they don't know how to be anything else besides cruel and hard and unkind. They just don't know. Sometimes it even hurts them when they do these things, but they don't know why they can't stop doing this thing to you, this hurtful, hurtful thing to you. Going back to people like that to tell them that they've done wrong just opens up. They're not, you're not going to get what you expect, which is usually a very tearful apology or whatever. You're not going to get that. You're not. Because you're going to justify their behavior, usually. This is what I would say. And I'm not, not a psychologist. Not a, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm a, I'm a you know, um, um, I'm, not, I'm not a man worth listening to. Living in butt crack Idaho. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but the idea still remains. I would say that it's about forgiving them. Letting go. They did it. Yes, they did. No one is saying they didn't do it. We're saying, let it go. Because if you do not let it go, and here's the thing, that's why it's, it's, it sounds so unfair. It sounds so unfair, right? It's like, you're the one who was hurt. Why should you be the one to do extra work, right? Because letting go is not an easy thing. It's like, why should you do the extra work of letting go? They should do something, right? Yeah, yeah, in a perfect world, maybe, right? But the world kind of sucks. It does, right? The world sucks. Um, you have, you know, tsunamis hitting unsuspecting victims. You have, you know, robberies. You have murders, and you have your situation where you were porked up as a kid. So the world sucks. But it doesn't change. It doesn't change how certain aspects of reality work. Just like. The response to a tsunami is not, you know, getting the tsunami to apologize. It's going and helping people. You find that it's, it's love. People, people come together, they spend a lot of money. Sometimes there are concerts to raise money for the people who have been affected. And um, they make changes. It's the same thing for you, it's love, it's love. For one reason or the other, this is the constant. This is the one constant thing about the universe. For one reason or the other, this is how hard things are changed into something useful, love. So I'm not saying that you should go around dancing with your parents and singing songs to their abuse on unkindness, but I'm saying let it go and forgive them because that is the only way your soul will find peace. That is the only way you will not end up just like them. Mm -hmm. That is the only way that if you do see themselves in you, you will because of your parents. <laughs> You're not going to hate yourself and hate the object that made you see that, whether your wife or your husband or your kids or whatever. You know? So, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. I think I think probably a lot of those parents who did do something wrong, they themselves were probably the victim of, of such uh, horrors when they themselves were children. I'm wondering, yeah. um, I, you know, I'm thinking about like uh, disorders, I think it's called, you know, oppositional defiance disorder or something along those lines. Let's say like, and I see this a lot in children that were abused. If they are confronted with, let's say, a normal authority figure, a teacher, their boss, the police. And let's just say that this authority figure is talking to them in a firm way. It's not an abusive way. It's just a firm way. Like, hey, you really need to make sure that tomorrow you do this, whatever. For whatever reason, it seems to trigger something in their mind, probably of their dad or of some other kind of childhood figure. And I'm wondering, like, you know, and they, it's almost like their brain just shuts off in that moment. And they just, they see their boss who's talking to them in a firm way. You know, you know, it's, it's firm, but it's not abusive. How does one control that 
it, like almost knee-jerk reaction because I actually think it is a knee-jerk reaction to imagine any authority figure. They may not be talking to you in the nicest way, but it's not abusive. How does one control that, those knee-jerk reactions where you see your father or you see some other abuser in just a benign authority figure? So one of my friends, loose friends, but every time we meet each other, we, we speak very well. We, we enjoy each other's company, but we don't see each other often. Yeah. Um, one of my friends is a, um, is a very, 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 very brilliant guy. Um, I think he has like two doctorates, believe it or not. Very brilliant guy. And he, he said something. He said, you know what? Um, and he's honest. That's why I like him a lot. He's just very honest. He's an atheist. He said, you know, every time I encounter Christians, I'm like super angry at the things they say. Like, like, it's just rage inside, right? And it's just, it's just I got to figure that out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he said, that's kind of messed up. Like, what is that, you know? But he, there's the thing that is the honesty. He acknowledged it, that it's a real thing. It's, he's not blaming them. He's saying it's something about him that's messed up. Because why should anyone make you respond? To anything like that. It's it's one of those situations where you have to think. There's a lot of things you have to let go of. That's why I think I, it comes back to what I said about forgiveness. There are a lot of things you have to let go of. Because if you don't let go of it, if you don't think about it critically, honestly, objectively, you're never going to be able to deal with it unless something spectacular happens. You know, it's it's not them, it's you. You got to figure out why you're doing that because you, it's incredible when a person has total control over their emotions, over their being. It's an, it's an incredible feat. I don't know that many can do that or many have done that, but we can come close. We can at least understand ourselves to the point where we know the difference between what is the legitimate response, what is a just a, you know, uh, sensational, thoughtless and sensational response to a person or a thing or a group of people or whatever, an idea. So it, it really does lie on the individual to figure it out. And I, I've found that most of the time it, it's, it's, we have to forgive. We have to forgive. You, because you've touched, this, this is very interesting because first impressions matter. They matter a really big deal and they, they, they have more weight than they logically should because if you meet somebody from a different community or you meet somebody for the first time, that person becomes the representative of that community or of that thing. And if you have one bad encounter with that person, it's very easy to be like, well, everyone from this sect or everyone from this group must be like that one person that I met. And it's really hard to kind of delete that file in your brain. Like once you encounter one person from that group, and especially if it happens in childhood, you know, unfortunately, our mind does go into a very uh, prejudicial place where it kind of tries to, our brains are constantly trying to clump things into the same category. And it, it takes a while to kind of delete that, that it's like a, it's like malware. It's like malware for the brain in a way. Every, human beings, we, we, we hate this. We don't acknowledge it. And sometimes we don't even think it's a possibility with ourselves, but we're incredibly prejudiced. We're incredibly prejudiced. Um, there is no human being, as far as I know, who doesn't have one prejudice or the other. It's now it's possible to not be prejudiced, absolutely. But you find that it's not the people who say they're not prejudiced that aren't prejudiced. Because usually they're prejudiced against people who they believe are prejudiced. <laughs> so you have this weird cycle. But yeah, um, first impressions are and you find that, yeah, it's, it does affect the way we see people or a group of people, but that's on us. And the question now becomes, you know, why are we prejudiced? Why, why, why do we do that immediately? Well, it often comes back to the same thing. We're not, um, 
we don't allow ourselves to think. We don't look at ourselves honestly. You know, we don't look at the world honestly. We're um, we're very rash in our decision making. We're very rash in the way we deal with people, and um, and that's 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 it. You know, we we don't refuse. We refuse to. We refuse to be thinking beings. And so we have our sensations who are thinking for us. Right, right. I, I have a theory that a lot of tribal behavior often stems from fear. And the reason I think this is because, well, you know, I, I like people who engage in, you know, and it could be in the political realm and whatnot. I think people who engage in tribal behavior, their immediate impulse is if these people are like me, I will be protected under them. I think I think this is what people immediately think when they engage in tribalism of like these people if I if my tribe wins I will be protected, I will be taken care of, I will be bestowed certain privileges. However, if this other tribe wins, I am going to be subjugated. And that fear actually does have a basis in history. I mean, if you if you read history, it's tip, it's it's one tribe conquering another and basically enslaving those people and doing horrendous things up until very recent time. So, you know, th- this this tribal behavior does stem from fear. I would say that maybe some of it is fairly rational if you are a student of history. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that. You know, the whole idea of eradicating. Um, an entire tribe simply because well they're not they're not us they're not our people and so yeah if we carry that onto the modern day I can see how that would be the case that a person would be antagonistic and fearful of the other tribe towards and fearful you know antagonistic towards and fearful of the other tribe but we're this is the modern day and we don't live in a world at least for the most part especially in the United States in the Western world where we have the threats of genocide and and things of that nature. Um, and so it's important back to thinking. It's important to recognize the times you are living in, the place you're living in. And because it's not really a, it's not it's not really a matter of fighting for your life anymore. Now we're fighting for something else. And if we can recognize the difference between fighting for one's life and fighting for one's ideas, there may be a saving grace there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can understand that. I can understand the white people enjoy their tribes and wants to be secured in their tribes. Um, but you find often that it's really an illusion because your tribe members, once you decide, you know, once you start thinking outside their tribe thoughts, um, don't want to protect you anymore don't want to be your friend, don't want to be around you. You become a pariah, you become a, uh, a naysayer, and then you're ostracized, ostracized and, uh, um, and set apart. Because most tribes can't abide naysayers, you know? So I would say, recognize the world you're living in. You're not fighting for your life. And so, which is, which is a great comfort. Um, and then respond appropriately to the world you're living in, to the place you're living in. So, yeah, I think I think that's some some good wisdom, at least for our 21st century landscape. I would actually make the argument that a lot of people think that genocide is fueled by hate, right? A lot of people think, oh, well, genocide is is it's, it's hatred, and I actually disagree with that. I actually think that genocide is fueled by fear and paranoia. I actually think that those are the stronger impulses here because I think the person that's under, you know, the person who's embarking on the genocide, I feel like they're afraid that the, they feel threatened by the presence of some outsider. And they feel, Mm. especially if this outsider is on the up and up and their, their mindset is like, well, if this outsider grows in number or grows in strength or power, political power, they will become the master over me and I will be vulnerable because they will outnumber us. They will control us. They will enslave us. And I I agree with you that our 
you know, it, the past maybe uh, 80 years has been relatively okay in selective countries, you know, Western Europe, United States, and so forth. But I, I always think like the Holocaust wasn't that long ago, you know, it, it's not, it's not, it's like 80 years ago, it's not, it's not too long ago. And I actually think that these tribal fears, even though we live in a relatively stable 21st century, I actually feel like these tribal fears are from, you know, I feel like they come from our Neolithic ancient ancient DNA. I actually think that these tribal fears, it could be, it could be one set of cavemen attacking and ki killing another, you know, in anthropology, you know, we learn that uh, it might've been the Homo sapiens that killed the Homo Neanderthals, you know, and, and I almost feel like this, this, this tribal fear is something that actually runs deeper. And even, even if on the surface, you're living in a modern westernized country, I feel like a lot of these prejudices and fears actually come from a very ancient, ancient place within us. Yeah. You know, Whoopi Goldberg got in trouble. She got in trouble recently for saying something I thought was actually very brilliant. So she had mentioned something about it being, you know, man's, um, man's cruelty against other men. And um, I think that's true. Humans were all, we, 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 we like to, we like to remove Hitler to a certain section and say, oh, look at him. Isn't he just odd? Which, sure, yeah. But we forget that we're capable of it. Any one of us is capable of it. Any one of us is capable of it. We forget that he hated, he hated an entire population, an entire section, or let's say an entire group of people. That's what he hated. He wanted to destroy them. And he rallied his nation to do the same thing. Hate is not, how you say, quantifiable. It's not like, oh, you had this much hate versus this much hate. This is this much hate. Hate is hate. Hatred is hatred. How many of us hate each other? How many of us hate our coworkers? How many of us hate our brothers and our sisters? How many of us actually hate our parents? How many of us hate Hitler himself, but we feel justified because we think we think we don't either have as much hate as he had, or that our hatred of him is justifiable. So I, I think you know I, I've like obviously studied uh, this quite extensively, and and a lot of people forget that both Hitler and Stalin, extremely paranoid figures of history, very very, and of their of outsiders and even of their inner circle, like both both of them yeah. were extremely paranoid. So I I see that fear element, and. I, I want to touch on something when you said you hate your coworker. Okay, let's just, and, and I'm trying to make this a little bit more down to earth for people listening. Let's say you hate your coworker. What is behind that hatred? Is it his tie? Is it his haircut? Is it his smile? Is it the mug that he uses? It's probably none of those things. You probably hate your coworker because you're afraid that he's doing a better job than you or he might replace you, or he might get promoted over you, and then you'll be subjugated to his rule or her rule and so forth. Because when we, when we say we hate somebody, I always ask myself, well, okay, why exactly do you hate your coworker? Why exactly do you hate that person? Is it really because you know, they're wearing brown leather shoes instead of black leather shoes? I don't think so. I think it has more to do with you're afraid that this person might eventually rise to have power over you and then you're going to be vulnerable to them this is my again this is my working hypothesis yeah i mean but we could also hate our co-workers for not doing as much work as we do we hate could hate them because you know they're in, they're imminently hateable they 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 don't they're not very friendly not very clean or always make the most you know awkward jokes or um, they speak their mind too much you know, they're, or too friendly. <laughs> Humans, we have very little, we have, we have very little uh, reason to hate. Uh, we, just, we need very little reason to hate. I, I would hate. love, a fr I love friendly. If Ned Flanders was my neighbor, I would love it. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> I, I'd be like, yeah. you know, can I borrow your tools? Oakley Doakley. I'd be like, that's all. Oh, this no. is wonderful. <laughs> Oakley Doakley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but to others, Ned Flanders is a pariah. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's not lovable for many, you know? Okay. Um, but I think that there, I think people hate Ned Flanders because they're afraid of him because he represents all that they are not. Like, I, I think that there's a fear of like, wow, this is what I could be. This is my potential. This is actualized potential walking near me. And in this shadow, I feel inadequate and I feel inferior. Therefore, I'm going to hate this guy, not because he's nice, but because he reminds me of my inadequacies on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah, very possible. Very possible. That's when we hate the greater. So when you hate the greater, you hate someone who is greater than you naturally because they make you feel without having said anything or pointed to it specifically, they make you feel inferior to them. But we could also hate our lessers. We hate people who are not as smart as we are, who are not as good looking, who are not as um, enjoyable and so forth. So there's hatred on both sides. There's hatred for those we absolutely find to be greater than ourselves. We could also easily hate those we find to be lesser than ourselves. I, I think that's also based in fear as well. And I'll tell you why. I think that if we look at, you know, our hunting days or anything in the past there, if someone was not pulling their weight, it kind of threatened our own survival. So I think when you're at work and somebody is not pulling their own weight, you, you hate them. Because again, I, I think I trace it back to fear because you're like, okay, if Johnny is not doing his job at work, the company is going to go bankrupt and we're all going to lose our job. So I, I think that that fear is not that you necessarily hate that person because they're working less than you are, but I think it's the implications that if that person is working less than you, they will cause the company to lose money, there'll be layoffs, and you might be one of those people laid off. Or you're working in, in a lot of work place situations, you're put on teams. And if you have a, a weak link in your team, then your entire team gets blamed for the actions of someone else. So again, I still see that as not pure hatred, but a fear-based hatred. Because if you had a friend in life that was just a slacker, okay, and we all have friends in life that are slackers, but you love them. You're like, hey, that's my Dorito eating video game playing friend, Jimmy. Hey, how are you, man? Let's. You don't hate someone for just naturally being a slacker. You only hate them for being a slacker when it directly affects your livelihood. Well, I can see that, but I don't totally agree with it because okay. it's very, it's kind of like how um, um, the rich have, there's a common, there's a common, you know, um, lingo amongst the rich when they say you know if i did it you can do it too yeah that how the rich despise the poor because they feel them to be lazy and unworthy um and sorry and totally deserving of everything that you know that comes their way well they have very different work they do very different work they live in very different environments they don't care much for they don't have the same interests but one side or both sides look at um, has a particular view, a particular contempt um, for the other, and so it's it, it's it's sometimes it's not it's not simply a matter of the collab the the, 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 the collaboratory effort towards a common goal, and you find that somebody is you know not pulling your weight, but it's more of a um, a difference in. Um, the difference in person, the, the, the hard working, the hard working, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Man, woman cannot understand the, the you know, laissez-faire because to him or her, that's just laziness, outright, you know, <coughs> ignorance, you know? I mean, so sometimes I do find that, so, go on, bro. I, I, I mean, I, I think that there are friendships between wealthy people and maybe less ambitious people. And they're usually not a problem, you know, but there's certain rules that have to be followed. So if you're a really rich, ambitious guy and you have some less ambitious friends, let's say you go out to dinner, but e even though the guy is really rich, you still split the check evenly. The poor person doesn't ask you for anything. I think that there's there's no resentment whatsoever. You're like, oh yeah, my mm. friend Bill, he's a carpenter. I 
totally love hanging out and watching uh, the New York Jets with them. I think there actually is an amicable relationship that could be had. I think most rich people come to despise the poor if it comes at a personal cost to themselves. So if they have a poor friend that believes, oh, we should really tax the rich, and the rich guy is like, well, I don't want to pay more taxes. Or if the rich guy has a, if the rich guy has a poor friend who's like, uh, hey, Steve, you've had a really good year. Do you think I could borrow ten grand? Or hey, do, do, do you know I'm getting a divorce with my wife? Do, do you think I could spend the next six months bumming on your couch? I think that's when it becomes a problem when the rich person's status or or whatever is being threatened by the poor person. That's when the resentment and the and the anger comes in. But if that poor person just happens to live in a in a smaller home and is going about their business. I don't know if there's necessarily that tension or that resentment. I think it's only when that poor person's existence in some way threatens the rich person's happiness in some way. Well, I, I can see that. I think you have a, uh, a kinder <laughs> view of humans than I do. Um, so I don't think we have, I don't think we need, I don't think um, humans need very much for any reason to hate another person. I think we hate we, we almost sometimes hate instinctively and sensationally, just hate for the sake of, for the sake of hate, hating. You know, the first impression is just something that is, that is not taken very kindly to. But yes, I would say that it's very possible that, you know, um, and it's usually the case that, you know, the hatred only comes up, the paranoia or the fear comes up when you are, when that person has become a um, has is you know is is has, is insisted, or is is, a, is an insistence upon your life and your livelihood and your comforts and your and your security or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I think that there has to be. I think it's this threat threat of replacement. It's the threat of someone usurping you and then you becoming the subordinate or becoming a weaker version of mm. yourself. I think, I, I think that's the fear. And then that fear gets converted into hatred of some sort. And I, I think, I think that would be the process. So perhaps the, you know, and now, you know, it's always at the hour mark, Kenny, that we actually start really getting under fire. <laughs> I always notice that once the 60 minute mark happens, then we start really playing with lightning and thunder here. <laughs> so I, I think what's going on here is your fear is determined by your own confidence in yourself. So if you really believe in yourself and believe, doesn't matter who's in power. I don't care if the Democrats or the Republicans are in power. I don't care if this person, you know, is there. I don't care if I'm working with this guy and he's better at me. If you ultimately have confidence in yourself, I think you're going to feel less inadequate and you're going to be less fearful and in turn uh, probably have a lot less hatred. I can see that, yeah. Um... It is. It is very self-centered. It is. It is very self-centered. You know, we. It has to come from. It has to come from ourselves, um, because if we are, and you, I like the word you, you use, confidence. You know, and not, not caring much what's going on, going on on the outside. Uh, I once met a a young man at a coffee shop who had cried the day Trump was elected, and. I couldn't understand this because it made no difference to me who was in power. My life, my livelihood, my 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 every day was simply, you know, one of, I guess, order, peace, understanding. Uh, it doesn't matter what's the point. What comes comes. What goes goes. You know. Um, so it, it does. It does. It does have a lot to do with confidence. It does have a lot to do with how how you how you see yourself do you see yourself as an individual and how do you participate as an individual in the grand scheme of the world and um so yeah i i can understand that I, and i believe you know it, i i i think that's a great example actually and you know what's funny about myself in a way is you know i actually have a, a master's degree in political science but people find it always funny that I never take politics too personally. 
Like I'm never, I'm never all that upset about who's elected or who's not. And people are like, man, you studied this so extensively. Why aren't you more, you know, emotionally charged and outraged? And I think it just comes down to the fact that I don't, one, I don't really put all that much stock in, you know, like leaders too much, too much in influencing my own life. I, and I, I think it comes down to just like an inner confidence of like, it's ultimately me that, that is going to determine my own fate. You know, yes, there are external variables and, and things that can either hinder me or assist me, but it's never to a degree, like fundamentally, whether when there's a new president that's elected, most people are not going to see a substantial difference in their personal day-to-day lives. They just, they just won't. You know, the new president comes, you don't all of a sudden quit your job and say, ha, I don't have any more parking tickets to pay anymore. And you know, <laughs> you know, like like I'm free. Like it just it never like I've never experienced that kind of change in my own life where a president changes and my day-to-day activities are that radically different. Yeah, you know, my tax return might be a little bit less or more, depending on who's president or what Congress decides, but Generally speaking, it's not something that would make me cry or, or keep me up at night. No, that's understandable. And I think uh, for many, many can relate with that. For a great deal of the world, they, you, you just said the unthinkable. <laughs> and I, I want to take your friend there. And I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. I don't want to pick on him or anything like that. But perhaps you know, perhaps he may have had, you know, some moments in his life where he was made vulnerable or something. But I think what happened is that he imagined the presidency of somebody, you know, and like, just to be fair, I'm sure there's people who also have inflated fears of Joe Biden. Okay. I think, I think it happens on both spectrums where there's people who are afraid of Trump, people who are afraid of Biden. And I think what happens is that these people have an overinflated fear that their life is going to become substantially worse or they'll be subjugated or powerless. And I think it runs rampant in their head. I think, I think it's all, and the media contributes to this, uh, you know, the media does play a role in doing this, but I think that these, the, this, it all exists in the mind, all of this fear of your, of your, uh, of your president exists in your mind for the most part. Yes, there are like real vicious leaders like Stalin and Hitler that you should truly be afraid of. But for the most part, the presidents that we've had in the United States, they're more of an annoyance than than really something to, to fear, I would imagine. Yeah, a lot of it does, you know, our imaginations do run amok. That's why it's very important to learn to control one's, one's own thoughts, one's own visions. Um, to know what is real, what is actual, what would be the case if such and such a thing would happen? What would be the actual situation? The future is unknown, the past can't be changed, the present is all you've got. And so it's best to live, I would say, it's best to live in, in a good amount of control over yourself so that you don't suffer for no reason. I want to I, I wanna just, we're, we're going to close out in like three minutes. Before we go, I just want to go over some maybe strategies. And this is one thing I use. And, and maybe you have something else that you can offer the listeners in terms of a strategy. One of the things that I use to, to help overcome fear, and I'm not going to lie, but I am fearless, Kenny. Uh, that, no, I'm, there's things that definitely get under my skin. But one of the strategies that I use is I always think about the worst, worst possible outcome of any given event, and then just imagine myself smiling or being okay in that particular predicament. And it's kind of counterintuitive because a lot of our self-help gurus out there, think of yourself in the best possible place. You're surrounded by cushy white teddy bears. And, and I actually think it's the opposite. I think you have to actually imagine yourself in the worst possible situation but you're doing okay in that situation. And for whatever reason, mentally, it's, it's, it's like a mental way of overcoming that fear of like, here's the worst case scenario. And here's me in that situation, still being okay and still being all right. And still smiling and still laughing and, and whatnot. That helps me. Anything, any uh, piece of advice that you could give our listeners? Stop it. <laughs> no, I like yours. I think yours is very helpful. Um, I think it, it's. Uh, I think it's very. It's a very good one. 
I don't know that mine if uh, I don't know that mine would be helpful honestly to anybody, but I, I think I think yours is good. I think it's very helpful. Um, and if they, if people can accomplish that and, and, and it affects them the right way, then yeah, it it it, it yeah, it will do it'll good do good in your in your own personal lives, you know? Mm, so yeah. yeah. I, I think your advice still applies. I think at a certain point, you just need to stop ruminating and stop thinking about it. And we, you know, it's like we can control our actions to some degree, but our thoughts, I got to say, man, controlling one's thoughts is probably like the hardest thing that one will ever get. Actions is difficult, but thoughts, controlling your thoughts, man, oh man, does that take it to a whole nother level? Who can restrain the wind? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I like that. Yes. Kenny, uh, thank you for helping me uh, be a little less fearful today. <laughs> thank you for helping me. Take care. This concludes the 172nd episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.